0: Chapter 2 of Over the Hills and Far Away a story of New Zealand by Charlotte Evans this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Lewis Fletcher pages from Lucy's diary on board the Flora Macdonald July 27th 1800 something yesterday Lewis and I went on board the Flora Macdonald at Gravesend and today we sailed so I suppose I ought immediately to commence a diary of the voyage Every one, I am told, begins one on first setting out, but people say it is very hard to find something to record every day at sea. I shall learn by experience if this is true or not. To begin then with yesterday. It was rather a dull kind of day and very hot until in the middle of the day a breeze sprang up from the river. We dined in Gravesend and went on board our ship just after the passengers who were already assembled had finished their dinner in the saloon. They were most of them on deck. Just as I stepped on board, a gust of wind blew off my hat. It was immediately captured and restored to me by a gentleman with a dark beard who was standing near. As I took my hat from him, I distinctly heard him mutter to himself, What beautiful hair! I felt myself grow scarlet, and was thankful to turn away to hide my hot cheeks, for the little scene had been so dramatic that it almost seemed as if I had lost my hat on purpose for the sake of effect. I had spirits enough to see the humorous side of everything, and indeed the day was not a sad one at all to Lewis and myself, This was chiefly, I think, because we had no especial friends to come and see the last of us. My aunts were not strong enough to attempt it, Lewis's friends are chiefly in New Zealand, and of my schoolgirl allies, not one could arrange matters so as to escort me to the ship. It was much better, and both Lewis and I were relieved at having got through all our farewells on terra firma. But pathetic little scenes were about us everywhere, and were taking place that day all over the ship from the wheel to the forecastle. In one corner I saw a poor old woman crying bitterly over her son, whom she never hoped to see again. A girl of my own age was lowered into a boat, looking as pale as death. As the boat pulled off, I saw that she had fainted, and her friends were trying to restore her so far in vain. Her lover was on board our ship. The ship's husband, as he is called, was on board, and the agent from Simpson and Seymour's, but not the captain, and no one seemed quite to know when he might be expected. At six o'clock we went down to a most uncomfortable tea in the saloon. Everyone sat in the wrong place, and no one had any appetite. All the other first cabin passengers were at tea, and I may as well put down their names here. The stern cabin next to mine is taken by a young married couple, a Mr. and Mrs. Grant, and then comes my cabin, then Lewis's, then the doctor's. Opposite to him is the gentleman with the beard, whose name I have not yet learnt. Then comes a cabin belonging to a Mr. Lennox, who has a run in Otago, and is returning from a few months' visit to England. He is grave, grey-haired, and elderly, but with a pleasant, attractive face and manner. Then two ex-officers of the 200th, Mr. Pryor and Mr. Meredith, share a cabin between them, and the other stern cabin is taken by a Mrs. Mostyn, with her two children and nurse. She is going out to join her husband. The saloon party is completed with the captain and first mate, who take the head and foot of the table. After tea we went up on deck again. It was utter misery and confusion. The doctor was reviewing the sailors on one side of the deck, and some of the second cabin passengers had pitched their camp stools, and were actually trying to keep their heads sufficiently clear in the confusion as to admit of their studying cheap editions in very small type of the Waverley novels. It was a very hot night. The breeze died away again, and it became perfectly calm. Lewis and I went and leaned over the bulwarks side by side, but were neither of us inclined to talk. A small steamer bound for Rotterdam passed us, and the people clustered like bees on her deck, waved their hats and handkerchiefs, and cheered the immigrant vessel. Some of us returned the salute. It began to grow dusk. When it was getting quite dark and I was tired of watching the lamps quiver so far in the river, I went below. Sleep, as I imagined, would be out of the question in that small closet of a cabin, with such strange noises all about me, but I was dead tired and soon fast asleep. The last thing I remember is hearing someone standing close to my cabin door in the saloon say, Goodbye, Dacre. Dieu vous garde. I looked through the slides of my cabin ventilator, and saw the bearded gentleman shaking hands with, apparently, a friend who was just leaving. Dacre? Dacre. Where have I heard that name lately? I cannot remember. The captain came on board late at night, and we sailed about four o'clock this morning. Grey dawn showed the water visible through my porthole, glassy smooth but turning green. After breakfast I went on deck. It was a lovely morning without a breath of wind. We were towed by a steam-tug to Deal, where we anchored and waited for a breeze. Mr. Meredith, who was a very handsome, fair-haired man, introduced himself to Lewis, and they rapidly made friends, while Mrs. Grant and I showed each other some new patterns in tatting. If we had been setting forth on a picnic in a pleasure boat, we could not have had a more lazy, charming day of it, with novels and backgammon on deck. July 28th, Thursday. Sailed this morning, another lovely day. At night, off Dungeness july twenty ninth our pleasant society has been quite broken up by the melancholy fact that almost all its members have succumbed to seasickness there were several gaps at the breakfast table and about ten o'clock lewis broke down he went below leaving me on deck fully determined never to give in the first mate came to me as i stood by the door of the companion stairs leading from the saloon and told me beachy head was in sight i was wild for a last glimpse of the dear old sussex coast so he helped me to walk up the deck and holding fast by one of the belaying pins i looked at the distant coastline out of my opera glass after a while a voice behind me said you must be tired of standing shall i fetch your easy chair up here for you i looked round dr dacre with his telescope in his hand was close to me standing in spite of the rolling of the vessel with sufficient ease and firmness as to show that this was not the first time he had been to sea dr dacre is the gentleman whom i have mentioned in my diary before as the man with the beard I should have added and with the eyes for his eyes are certainly uncommonly bright and handsome for the rest he looks about thirty and has a pleasant face with a square forehead but he is not nearly as good-looking as mr meredith who is by far our handsomest cabin passenger i thanked dr dacre and he fetched my chair then standing by my side he said no one has introduced us to each other but considering that we are likely to be near neighbours for a good many weeks i think i may venture to present myself your name is miss cunningham i know and mine is rilston dacre We both bowed very gravely and formally in honour of the introduction, and then both laughed, and Dr. Dacre remarked, You seem to be a good sailor, Miss Cunningham. I told him this was my first voyage, and I was afraid to boast too soon. But you have been to sea before now, I am certain, I added. He asked me how I knew that. I said by the way he walked the deck. He smiled and said I was right. He had been accustomed to spend days on board a Plymouth trawler, and the motion of this large ship seemed nothing to him after that. Then, after a short pause, he told me that with his telescope he could see a thrashing machine on the downs near Beachy Head. I exclaimed, and he held the glass for me to look through. When I raised my head, I saw that he was gazing at the white cliffs with a face, the expression of which had clouded during the last moment or two. I know his look rather startled me, and he must have noticed that it did, for, catching my eye, he said, I was thinking of the last time I stood on the deck of an outward bound, and looked at those cliffs. Six years ago. It's a long time. I did not know what to reply to this, so I made no answer. He also held his peace and looked out darkly for a few moments at the distant coast. The blue waves of the channel were leaping and dancing all round us. A large Turkish vessel was passing us to leeward, and behind were the white chalk walls with glimpses of the green downland above. "'Do you know Sussex, Dr. Dacre?' I asked, "'more by way of something to say than because I took the slightest interest in the answer I might receive.' He shook his head. "'No,' he said, "'I have never even entered that county.' I have no association with it whatever all my pleasantest english associations center in sussex i said and mine in devonshire i was beginning to grow intensely weary of the conversation this tiresome man i thought will he never go away and let me read in peace what do i care which county he likes best or about his life six years ago i was glad when the first mate mr bruce came up and began to talk to dr dacre who presently left me and they walked up and down the deck together i pondered for a minute or two on a subject that puzzles me where did i see or hear the name dacre before i left england i never knew anyone of that name i must have read it somewhere but where and in connection with what subject i cannot remember tired of worrying my memory at last i took up my book again it was the mill on the floss and i was soon quite absorbed in the history of maggie tulliver and stephen End of chapter 2 of Over the Hills and Far Away, a story of New Zealand by Charlotte Evans. Recording by Lewis Fletcher.